Hello, welcome back to Out of Our Heads, a pop culture podcast from the minds of Joe Bortner uh, and the Day Caesar, Nick Protopapis. I'm sorry, the what? The the Day Caesar. Like I, Caesar. I don't know what that means. The phrase seize the day. Oh, I thought it was, that's funny. I thought you were talking about something about Caesar, like some sort of embodiment of Julius Caesar. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Day Caesar, I that's good. I know you would end up at that conclusion. Yeah. You could do like a little, you could do day tripper, but day Caesar. Do, 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 do. Oh, that's a, that's that a good one. That could be me. Parodying. That could something. be you. Yeah. Making a parody that's not only not good, but not funny. That I could, mm-hmm. it's not even a good play. Day Caesar. Yeah. Do you remember when we started this podcast, you, uh, you had like the big idea that in episode three, I think it is, we should sing. Yeah. And it would have been good if you did sing. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I- what, 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 what were we singing? We, you didn't want to sing. We didn't do that. I'm pretty sure we sung. I don't think so, Joe. I think we mm-hmm. tried to remember the lyrics to Don't You Want Me. Yes, that yeah. did happen. But you wouldn't sing, so we didn't sing. Okay. Yeah. I think you did a bit of singing. I think every my, my idea every time is that we should sing because it would be funny. But we never mm-hmm. do. Yeah, that sounds true. So we do have a tip jar on this show. A song for you today. A tip jar on the show. Yeah. Um, and I think that's linked in the episode description. Uh, if we get 100 whole dollars, which I don't think we've even gotten one dollar then we will sing a song on the show so why don't we do like 10 or something how about 10 because we still won't get that but it'll be faster okay 15 yeah all right 15 let's say 15 dollars that's more than a bill so it's fine yeah yeah all right yeah i think it's do we you can give in increments of like one two or five I think is how it shakes out. That makes sense. Okay. So what are we singing? Or is it like a they decide kind of thing? They suggest. I think like what would happen is if we got that amount, I would like put a poll up on Twitter and um, I would just let the people decide. Mm. That makes sense. I, I would I would agree to anything except for Christmas songs, I think. Okay. Unless, unless it I agree. was Christmas time. If it was Christmas time, then I would do it. But I wouldn't be happy about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm glad we agree. As as a Jew, I think I would also not be happy about it, but only to stay in character. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I actually, I, I take that back. I only sing Christmas songs. <laughs> just to, just to stay in character, though. I only mm-hmm. sing Christian rock and Christmas songs. Those are the two things I'll sing for you. Oh God! Don't love that. Don't love that visual. Oh, I'll be very, I'll be very good at it. Okay, if you're good at it, I accept it. Cool. All right, Joe. Nick, do you have something for me today? Uh, I do. I do. I do have a thing for you. Uh, my thing for you this week. Uh, is a new movie that is on streaming and also in theaters, but don't go to a movie theater. Um, <laughs> it's a hmm. uh, third movie in the Bill and Ted franchise, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Okay, cool. I think we talked about Bill and Ted a little last time. I don't know what's going on. I probably forgot any explanation you gave me last time. Uh, I assume they're two good friends who go on a wacky adventure and uh, get into a disagreement about, you know, two-thirds of the way through, but then get over it? Um, that's not what happens. Okay, so, so here's the thing about Bill and Ted. Um, the first movie um, is about uh, two teenagers. They are failing at their history test, um, or, like, in their history class, um, and they need to get a good grade. Uh, this guy named Rufus comes from the future uh, and tells them that one day they will save the universe um, so they have to like pass this test, uh, because otherwise how, how are they going to achieve that glory? Um, so he gives them his time machine, uh, and they use it to travel through time and collect historical figures, um, to help them pass their history test. That's pretty funny, actually. And that's what the first Bill and Ted movie is about. 
this movie focuses on the original Bill and Ted, who are now adults uh, with teenage daughters, as they set out to write the song that will save the multiverse from exploding. Um, so to do this, Bill and Ted travel forwards in time in an attempt to steal songs or steal the song from their future selves, uh, while their daughters, uh, who are uh, new characters for this movie, uh, go back in time to recruit historical musicians to play in the band that will uh, do the song. Um, okay. So there was also a second movie, though. There was, and in that one they go to hell, and they befriend the, the, the devil um, and start a rock band with him. And that's like part of their like prophesizing and save the world is like, that was like the second step. Like first, uh, they, had yeah, to, yeah. first they had to pass the test then they had to. So is the devil in this movie? Uh, yes. Uh, he shows up later on. Nice. So there's sort of a bit where, um, actually I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get into that. Uh, cause I think there will probably be people, perhaps be people listening to this podcast who, who want to see the movie. Hey, you know, uh, Joe, that all sounds very funny. I, I like, I like it. Yeah, um, you know, so the thing about this one is um, sometimes a movie can be, like, enthusiastic enough about itself and about, like, life uh, that, like, me, uh, like, I as an audience member am just fully willing to forgive its failings on, like, the level of, like, creating an emotional through line. Um, you know, and for me, that's this film. Uh, the thing about the original Bill and Ted is the characters don't actually have arcs. Um, it's just them going on a comedic adventure. Um, this movie attempts to implement character arcs for Bill and Ted, um, and I don't think they really land the uh, like stick the landing. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, this movie attempts to give character arcs to a bunch of different characters, um, and I don't think any of them are like, or any of the arcs are really fleshed out in a meaningful way. Mm. Um, but is it funny? It's, uh, I think, pretty funny. Um, Compared to the other, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, obviously part of the appeal is that you're revisiting this franchise that I don't think has had a movie since maybe 1989 or 1991, uh, depending on the sequel came out. You know, I, I, I think that is like... A very strong thing. It does a lot of like callbacks in, I think, a, a non pandery way. You know how like some of these revival movies will like, you know, they'll consist entirely of, of callbacks to previous movies. Yes. yes this I one, I think, mostly avoids that, although it like sort of has the structure of the first movie um, in parts because the daughters are going back and recruiting historical figures. Um, but there's not like callbacks to specific jokes really um it's not like hey do you remember when this happened um you know i i think uh it has a lot of great lines and in, in characters um they, there's a bit where basically so bill and ted's daughters who i mentioned earlier uh they act exactly like carbon copies of bill and ted from the first movie um oh, oh, they, wait 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 but are their daughters opposite like does is bill's daughter like ted is that is that how it is no, 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 Nick, you don't understand. Bill and Ted are basically the same person. Oh, okay. <laughs> they never disagree. Okay, okay, sorry. I just assumed <laughs> that, you know, one of them was one of them was uh, messy and the other one was, was smart or something and, you, you know, that kind no, of... No, 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 no. This is, like, the same person in slightly different life circumstances. Okay, all right, never mind then. Got it. Um, Wait, they don't, know, they don't even have, like, they don't even have, like, uh, you know the personality trait tall or, or with black hair, they don't have any of that going. Well, they have that. They have that, you know, Keanu Reeves is taller and has darker hair than Alex winter. Okay, cool. Um, you know, so, so the, their daughters have, you know, the same mannerisms they did in the first movie. Um, and the actor who plays Ted's daughter does just a phenomenal job of imitating and remixing like that character's mannerisms. Um, also, uh, this is the only movie that features Kid Cudi as an expert on multiversal travel. So that's cool. Nice. I don't know who that is, but that sounds that sounds fun. Yeah, he's a he's a rapper. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, 
at the end of the movie, he he warps away. Cool, even cooler. Um, that that was really that that joke came all the way around because first he existed and then he teleported away, so that it makes it even funnier. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think the other thing about this movie, which I think, you know, it shares in common with the previous two movies, is that it is incredibly succinct. It's under ninety minutes, and that really helps it not outstay its welcome, uh, which I think a lot of comedy movies have like the tendency to do, um, even if they are on the shorter side. Um, yeah, definitely agree. Yeah. With that. So. I would recommend this movie to Bill and Ted fans. Uh, and for you, Nick, uh, I recommend watching through the first two at some point. And if you like those, I would recommend this one because I think it's a good um, sort of happy little resolution to the saga of Bill and Ted. Okay, sounds good. I will probably get on that since this is the second time you're telling me to do it. Yeah. Usually the I- magic number is like 52, but you're on your way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Should I should I return your gift to me in in the form of another gift to you? Oh, I would I would love that. Okay. Uh, well, I'm gonna try to talk about Sopranos again, and I know I've done that once before for the first season, but it's it's been a while. I'm where am I? I'm about to finish the fourth season, so I think I have a oh. pretty good grasp on what the show is like without the exact conclusions of it. Um, so it definitely operates more like Mad Men uh, in that it the the way it frames episodes and even scenes um, and different storylines is sort of disjointed. Like they might introduce something, you know, episodes before and come back to it, not next week, but the week out, you know, two episodes later, let's say. And it, it feels a little weird sometimes because some of those things are big, big conflicts. Um, mm-hmm. But so they do address everything. And a lot of it is around character stuff, but you know, you, you kind of skip around in a way that, makes you a little, you know, it doesn't feel exactly like a traditional TV setup where, where the plot is followed up on every week, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of good things about this show. It's got good character work, great acting. Um, it's, it's very pretty. Um, just like, I guess that's a kind of easy thing to say, but in, they have all these like contours for like, you know, the night scenes in the car and they totally exaggerated them, but they, I think it really works for all these like big nose Italian guys. Um, yeah, they have these great, like dark shadows on their face and, uh, you know, the music choices too. But, um, the thing I want to talk about this week is, is sort of the, the, the vibe you get, because it's, it's like I was saying that they're cutting up the scenes this way. And another thing, because we've been watching it so much recently is you sort of notice that the, the, the actual scenes are very, very short, or at least a lot of the time they are. Um, so you might just get like, you know, you know, Tony, let's say walks into an office of a guy who owes him money. And he's like, hey, what's up? And then he's like, and then they both walk into the office together. And that's the end of the scene, like totally short things like that, because they're doing that same thing within the episode where they're, where they're cutting, cutting scenes up and, and dropping them in different places. And sometimes you get like, like I was saying, the introduction of something very briefly and then not touched upon until episodes later. And so what this does, it kind of, it takes you away from, you know, at a certain point you, you've been watching things so long, you can kind of sit down in the middle of a movie your friends watching it and say, all right, this is the middle of the movie or this is the end of the movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So what this does is it like kind of totally takes that away from you. And like, I get totally, totally lost in it when I'm watching. Cause it feels like I'm sort of just tuning into, into this, into this Italian mobster's life instead of, you know, watching a, a, a plot that's going to resolve by the end of the episode at all. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the times you know, this is more of a criticism, really, but a lot of times things feel like they're not going anywhere. Like, it's just sort of the same beat over and over. Like, in this season, there is a romance or sort of implied romance. It's not actually anything physical, let's say, between Tony's wife and a an Italian henchman of his. There's no better way to describe him than henchman. Um, <laughs> yeah, his name, is, his name is Furio, and his only personality trait is being Italian. Um, okay. Like every conversation that a group thing is having, like they just insert what an Italian person would say, and that's what he says. <laughs> uh, but anyways, those two have a sort of seems like this show has a has a cultural bias issue, Nick. No, it doesn't, <laughs> because every character is Italian American. <laughs> it's not a problem. No problems whatsoever. Anyways, um, 
those two, the wife and, and Furio have a sort of romance thing going, which is kind of uncomfortable, but you know, they sort of just tease it for a while. And at first you're like, Oh, that was a tease for that. And it kind of escalates a little, but I'm at, I'm at very near the end of the season. It feels like I've watched 20 or 30 scenes of this happening. Like, like I said, very brief ones where it's not going anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I always like that, but it definitely does feel like I'm tuning into this person's life. Uh, and like, you know, his daughter's off to college and you don't see her for a while, stuff like that. It's, uh, it's really nice for atmosphere. Um, and the way they film it is obviously like, you know, top tier stuff. So that makes you feel like you're really, you're really there. And I think that's a unique aspect of this show. Um, yeah, I really enjoy that. Nice. Yeah. I think that sounds interesting to me. Um, cause I know that like the Sopranos is sort of where the idea of like peak TV, like shows like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul come from. Yeah. Um, and I, I might, now that I'm done with those shows, I might need more of that style of thing in my life, perhaps. Yeah, it's definitely that style. I really, so far, I can't say that it's, it's better or even on the same level as, you know, those two shows, mm-hmm. but it is very good still. Like you can tell, like, it's kind of weird because this one has a lot of sort of problems and things you can complain about more. Um, so it's, it's kind of worse, but it's sort of still made on that level, if that makes sense. Like the, the production value and the acting and like, you know, sort of the, the nuance in the script, stuff like that is still there. Um, even when it doesn't pan out as well as you maybe want. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but the thing about that, you know, that way of having a show like I was talking about is that it sort of leaves you totally guessing when something is going to happen or, you know, like you, you just don't know what's going to happen at all. Like, like the way that the show treats death and stuff is just so like, I don't want to say realistic, but like you start an episode and someone's like, oh, the character is dead. And you're like, wow, that was sudden. It's always like that. It's always sudden. Um, well, I know it's great. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I really, I really like it as a reflection of life. That's what I'll say. I'm done now. Right. And you connect it, you connect to it, obviously, because of your own life as an Italian mobster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really tough. <laughs> actually, actually, I do relate to it quite a bit. And it's funny you said that. It's just like uh, sort of being, you know, like, you know, they're all like quote unquote Italian people but a lot of them just like don't speak Italian and like, they don't even know what's going on. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's mm-hmm. sort of this weird, like Tony, especially is this character who is caught between worlds. So yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, you want to move on to the main event? I really do. Great. Uh, Nick, this week we are picking back up with Jeff Smith's Bone, this time with volume... What was that? What was what? (laughs) That noise! I don't know. What did you hear? It was like a slurping noise? I really don't know. (laughs) I didn't hear anything. I just heard you stop talking. I, w- I was just like, whoa, Nick is very excited for Bone. He would <laughs> eat these books. <laughs> I might have pressed the little like volume button on the headphones. <laughs> that might have happened, um, but I did not slurp anything. You would know. If okay. Something. Okay. These are volumes four through six of Bone, uh, sort of act two of uh, Jeff Smith's uh, you know, take on uh a thousand page narratives <laughs> yes um we sort of described the first three i think accurately as like very good very funny you know getting better all the time um through the three books um and then it, it sort of starts teasing this like more epic you know lord of the ringsy plot um and and you know four five and six here are very much transitioning to that to that bigger plot that's been teased um, and you sort of get, I noticed this time around, just like a lot of like exposition, so much exposition. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, wow. I was baffled how much, like, it's not bad. It's like kind of interesting, but for someone who's like very aware of how this is going to go, like, it just seemed like, it's, it's like, wow, there's so much information to know that like hasn't mm-hmm. been explored at all in the first three books, just cause like, they're just kind of goofing around there, um, and like teasing stuff. And this is like 
oh crap, we got to explain everything right now. Like, um, so there's a lot of that going on. And then what's actually going on with the characters besides sort of learning about them, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen to them, I guess, um, is sometimes still pretty funny, but usually a little bit more dramatic. And I think tonally these, these next three do a really good job of like still being silly, but with a little, you know, more serious without getting into the, the ultimate plot of the books, if that makes sense. Um, like, especially, yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially like the fifth one, like Smiley and Phony, uh, Phone Bone are just like doing a side adventure in the mountains. And it's like the stakes feel higher, but it's not exactly the thing where they're going to be, be deal, dealing with as the final conflict. Mm-hmm. That one, uh, that's um, Rockjaw, the master of the Eastern border, that volume. Um, that one's interesting to me because I think it showcases sort of a transition point um where i think jeff smith not that he was uninvested in this before uh but he kept he becomes a lot more invested in like paying attention to natural environments um uh you know we get a lot of like big splash pages of uh rocks and mountainous regions and like what's happening in the valley um which i think there's a lot less of that in the first three um you know, I, I think that's something he handles really well. There are a lot of, like, really beautiful, like, just uh, uh, wide panels of characters, like, moving through massive settings, especially, th- I guess that's more in, in Volume 4 and 6 than it is in 5, actually. It's, it's in all of them. I think you're, I think you're right. Yeah. Especially, like, the, the big action moments, or not even. The sixth one starts off with a sort of awesome splash page of, the you know the, the spread is the rat creatures sort of in the forest and then the panels under it are them crouching in the in the shrubbery i think that's yeah one, one of those legendary pages um yeah no i it's definitely <laughs> like like uh in an in an i don't want to say improvement even because it, earlier it's, it's sort of all like works really well as it progresses like it's progressing, but the art is like getting more serious too. Like Thorn is drawn so much better now, and all the humor. Oh yeah, everything is. Can so we better. can we talk about that? Um, so good because we were criticizing. So it. yeah. So Thorn in like the first few of these, uh, not so much volume three, but definitely in volumes one and two. Uh, I I think her character design is sort of like it, 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 I don't know if it's appropriate for her. It's just like very like bubbly and like. <laughs> You know, oh, she's like the the pretty forest lady, right? Um, and I, I I dig with like the the visual recontextualization she gets here, um, because like, you know, so in the in the first few she's very at times she's creepy, um, and here they they sort of transition her to being like a little creepy, but also she's sort of a fantasy hero, and sometimes she sort of looks like the protagonist of a horror movie yeah yeah horror movie or like especially i'm thinking of like her armor like get up like later just like mm-hmm. totally epic I, I don't know how else, I was, I'm <laughs> like such an idiot saying that but like it, it's funny it's kind of it's, it's almost weird I, I definitely didn't notice this when i was a kid but as her character becomes more serious you know about what she's dealing with you know personally um and thorn is sort of angry at grandma ben in these books for lying about her past and she's discovering her destiny as you know uh, fairy princess as phone bone says <laughs> and you know it, it's weird because you can so separate her design in the first few books and the way she acts there and then the way she acts here is like so different but she also looks so different so mm-hmm. when i was reading this it was almost hard to like try to go back and remember like the first book like she looked so different too um which is kind of cool actually um and it, it works like that way that's what i was trying to say about the the pages it's like yeah, like now we're getting more like epic, let's say, or like, you know, like bigger, like splash pages, but now it's more appropriate because the stakes are higher. Um, and I'm thinking especially of not even, I don't you know, not even about the panels, but sort of the, the art, like landscape stuff of the mountains when they're in the fifth book, again, like that all feels so steep. Like, I, I don't know how to describe that any better. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, there's this sort of like constant tension of them being so high up and like on the ledge or something that it like is so it becomes more apparent. Um, I mean, so, so part of that is like, so there's a wild setting shifts cause we've never been on the mountains before really. Right. Right. You know, you know, we've always been in the forest. We've always been like close to the earth and that like that presents its own danger. And then once we're like 
once the characters are like so high up, it's just like we can see the forest like down on the ground floor, but like we can't touch it. Yeah. This presents this really interesting scenario shift. I keep saying we like we're the characters in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense. We're going to the mountains for the first time as, as the audience too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I'll say is that the fifth book is so much fun uh, art-wise because Jeff Smith, like I said before, is so good at drawing these like cartoony animals and especially the bones. Um, and Rockjaw is just so so good as like a like I can hear him. He's so good as like an expressive like cartoon character that's like also very yeah. design like. And then you get all the little animals too, and the possums. I you know you you can never forget how good the possums are, even though they're really simple and like how cheeky they are as little kids. You get like peanuts vibes from them it's it's just like it all comes together really well especially when you have the bones sort of hang out with them all and like no humans around like it's just it's it's sort of like jeff smith's wonderland of like hey i can draw all these things really well and like rocks too yeah it's like really good at rocks and like the purple like like triangle <laughs> mountains in the background he's like this is just like playground for what he's good at drawing um yeah i mean that's the thing about bone is just like it does everything <laughs> it has everything yeah and and like and then you think okay maybe it's because of that but like then you come to the sixth book and it's like wow this is just so much better than it's like it's for me it's exciting because i i definitely didn't notice any of this when i was a kid but like for me it's just like exciting because i don't exactly remember like it's hard to exactly remember how the art improves and just like Mm -hmm. watching it as we're reading these is so like satisfying and exciting especially like you know when it's when it's human characters yeah yeah absolutely uh, yeah. I sort of okay. something I find interesting. So I've I've um, I just read Razzle a couple weeks ago. Whoa! Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, you gave me that book like four years ago <laughs> for some reason. Let's talk um, about that. What did you think of that? Uh, uh, I like it. I don't want to derail too much, but I, I after when we're done recording. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Highly exclusive content later. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think, you know, you can sort of see him transitioning to the way that he draws, like, people in that book. That's a lot more grounded of a story. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I sort of like the balance he strikes in the later volumes of Bone, like, the most in terms of how he draws humans. Yeah. Um, just yeah. great stuff with, like, Grandma Ben and, like, Lucius and Thorn in these volumes. Yeah, it's like there's like especially the older you know grandma. They're like still cartoony, but like more realistic, I guess. And I think Rassel actually does a good job, probably a better job for me. Where like these 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 don't look like actual people, um, but they look like they look like humans, and they look like they're the cartoon versions of themselves. This is weird. Like it's it, you know Jeff Smith's style is like a little less cartoony than cartoons, cartoons. Um, <clears throat> so like like you know thorn and it's like it's like a little more realistic than like disney i would say that's how i would categorize it um yeah and i think you can look at like a character like rockjaw who has you know i i think a pretty good analogous character in like scar from lion king yeah i think that's the voice i hear to be completely honest yeah i i I think they have similar mannerisms too very good voice. Just the way that I really like Rockdale. <laughs> I really, really like yeah. Rockdale. Everything he says is like so seamless and like, I don't know, just jumps off the page. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so while we're talking about volume five, I'm like flipping through uh, that book right now. Yeah. Um, and the whole sequence where they're being attacked by uh, King Doc, the leader of the rat creatures. Um, well, it's actually like a, a dream version of him. Uh, and th- you have like seven or 11 characters just stuck on this tiny ledge as they're being threatened by like this massive creature. And that's a whole long sequence. And I think it just goes so far in this volume where you have like all these set pieces that are just so claustrophobic. Yeah. In this way. Yeah. I, I kind of hope this wouldn't turn into us gushing about book five, but um <laughs> But book five works so well uh, because it has yeah. a little climax going, whereas everything else is sort of like building to something else. And like these these middle books, definitely they all they so, they so feel like they're building to something more epic. But see, uh, you know, the the fifth book sort of has its own conclusion, 
It's just there's so mm-hmm. many factors going on in this mini plot where like like there's King Duck and then there's also but he's a dream, but then he's real, but there's Rock Jaw and like the bones are just like trying to get out of here, but they're not sure if they're gonna get rid of the rat creature baby they have, and then they do. Like there's just I don't know, there's just so much going on. Hey, you know what's funny? What you got? Like, do you think do you think that he <laughs> do you think that he finished one chapter of that book? where he drew all the like little friends of the raccoon that they had to save <laughs> and then had to deal with like, cause you just said that and it made me think like, and then had to deal with drawing like 10 extra characters forever. Like <laughs> you think it was like more of a mistake than anything else. Like more of like crap. Like why'd I draw 10 animals? Like mm-hmm. who, why would he choose so many? <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I mean, let me, okay. So counting Bartleby, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. That's not wow. even possums. That's I don't three think. plus three. Yeah. Wow. Or there might even be more. I was oh, looking birds. at birds. Can you see any birds? Because there's two there birds. Are other birds. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Anyways, um, uh, there are two snakes. Yeah. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Um. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think of the uh, the overall plot stuff? Not just the fifth one, maybe. Um, I I think this book. So there are a couple things that I I want to talk about here. Yeah. Um, I, I think um this like middle section of Bone does a really good job at like heightening the stakes, like you said earlier. Um, there's like one scene in particular I'm thinking of in Volume Four, uh, right at the beginning, where they've just been attacked by King Doc, um, and Phone Bone has like been thrown off to the side in the forest um and he wakes up in this pile of leaves and his hand is like covered in blood um which like we're not sure if it's his or not um and then he like unknowingly smears the like smears all that blood on the side of his face and it's just such a striking image and it's like underplayed just enough that it's not gratuitous but it's also just such a great like oh shit like this is all real now yeah i mean i think there's a lot of like i mean this is the first time i think we see blood like there's like you know yeah or like serious blood yeah fair tease there's lots of like little scratches oh yeah 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 then there's this weird like moment in the fifth book where like the two rat creatures we've been following around like ate some kids parents of course the kid's an animal but still like like it's it's just like there's lots of like very cool moments like thorn gets like a cool outfit like a sword like there's a giant mountain lion like you know uh yeah gonna be a blood sacrifice like all these very cool like moments that when you go back and read them they're like they're like wow that's like like the very escalating what's going on but there's no you're not really sure he can pull off the ending yet if that makes sense like you you know because mm-hmm. there's no like wrap up it's all just like building 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 um Except for the fifth one, which has its, of course, of course, sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think the other thing I liked about this a lot is that even though it is, I said that, and it's like building stuff and like, you know, whatnot, I, you know, and it has the kind of thing where like, you know, Thorne's mad at grandma and you know that's not going to last and like, whatever, like you got all that going. Um, there, there's there's a good conclusion in the sixth book and they, they, they actually go for some stuff in that one instead of like teasing it for later. Like you pretty much find out the like secret identity of the bad guy, um, that sort of thing. Like you, you do delve it a bit into it so that you feel like you maybe got a little bit too much for how soon it is in the series. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing that these volumes do really well is we get a lot of additional pathos for characters that like you know maybe at the beginning you're not really expecting to get pathos for them. Um, like the one that always strikes me whenever I go back to reread this is around the end of volume six, I think, um, there's this conversation, uh, with, uh, Thorn and Smiley and Phonebone. Um, and I think Thorn is like, why are you guys always trying to protect Phonybone? He's like <laughs> the biggest, most horrible person on the planet. Yeah. Um, he's like the biggest jerk ever. Um, and uh, you find out, or, or sorry, no, 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 no. It's um, Thorn is is saying like, oh, you don't know what it's like to be an orphan. Being an orphan, um, yeah. Bones are like, oh, well, we're orphans actually. Um, and and the reason that Phony Bone is like always running his griffs is in part because like he believes that it's what he needs to do to take care of the other two. 
which just breaks my heart every time, man. Yeah, that's good, man. And like the same thing with Smiley. Like Smiley, like is sort of an idiot dunce until his focus in the fifth book, um, and his yeah. his care for the baby rat creature. And I think that's really great. It really it really changes the way you look at him too. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about like at least with Phony is, um, you know, Grandma Ben talks to him a lot in these books, um, like more than you would expect. And like they have sort of a connection. It's like, you know, not very concrete. But it's just like, whoa, she actually, you know, she doesn't really show it like up front because she's still like sort of, you know, a, a jerk to him on the face of it. Yeah. Um, like, I, I think she has a lot of tolerance and like sympathy for him in a way. Um, yeah. Um, it, it, they Bone does a really good job of like towing the line with Phony. Um, I, yeah. th- I think that that book four, The Dragon Slayer, which is like very focused on him, is probably one of the best written probably the best written of the volumes um, just because it does such a, such a good job of like showing like basically how a mob is born. Like, <laughs> like this, it's, it's crazy to me because I think it's such a good example of like, it's, it's just, like, it's showing like how like fear spreads, how like prejudice is, how a mob forms, how phony is manipulating all that, but how he's not that bad actually, like all of these things at once, like that's a very difficult thing to do. I think. Because you could yeah. so easily come out, come across like too much of a dickhead. You know what I mean? And like even mm-hmm. like even that that idea that he's thinking about leaving his cousins, like that that could be, that could be brutal if done wrong. But even in those moments, you're you're still feeling for phony for some reason. Um, and I just, yeah, and then you get like the whammy later of the thing I said earlier, which is yeah, just... yeah. But I mean, even before that, I don't. I wouldn't say you're against him. Like it, it, you understand what he's doing pretty clearly i mean I, th- I think the thing they do pretty well is he goes like right up to the edge of being almost intolerable exactly in- yeah right back yeah um i mean so so one of the other things i'm thinking about maybe like one of the the more central thematic things of bone um is that jeff smith as a creator is just very interested in like the unknown and like you know realms beyond realms i guess mm-hmm. um and have like this this fantasy world in bone um where like you know we know things about the people there we hear a lot about their politics um as you said earlier um uh but there's also this this other realm of the dreaming which you know we we know enough about to like care about the stakes um but there's a lot of history there that we're not fully let in on um and i i think to draw like a comparison with razzle um in that book you have a lot of the the newtonian physics stuff because the main character is like traveling between alternate dimensions um and that that's like a world that i I don't think we we fully get to understand either um and, and i just i i really like that vibe especially here um just because like Maybe some of this is is coming to it as a very young kid, Mm -hmm. Um, but I just like as 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 a child, I was just always struck by the rapidly expanding worldview that were provided in the Bone books. Yeah, Um, just how like some of it, you know, you'll maybe never fully understand, but it's just so cool to think about. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really good world building, and one of the fun things about it is that the bones are sort of they act as us because their society is like is like us, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There's a sort of like this breaking of the world sometimes when the when the bones mention things like, I think he says something. The phony says something like Spartan in the fourth book to describe something, and that's just yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a total moment where it's like, wait a moment, but it's it still works because it's only those characters who know about it. Um, and I think there's a lot of funny moments that I was reading this time where where phone bones says something like, Oh, it's there. It's the local belief culture about the dreams or things like that. Um, mm-hmm. and I think things like that are really funny. Um, just cause it, you can tell that they don't fully buy it at first. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> what is it? It's like, you know, uh, it's their culture, man. We got to respect their culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, speaking of that, um, sort of to draw those two things together, um, that we were talking about, um, there's this line, I think it's in volume six, it must be, um, where 
Uh, I think it's Phony Bone, and he's asking Lucius why uh, he doesn't just like tell the people about the dragons. Yeah. Uh, at least not up front. And Lucius has this great, really interesting line, which I think gives a lot more character to him. Uh, he says, we're always taught that dragons don't exist. It's the only way that we can discover them for ourselves. Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, that's an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny because all the like townspeople are like very idiotic. Um, so that kind of makes sense for them, even though they're all adults. Uh, <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I like the way that they sort of grow up as the stakes grow too. Like they... They are more in focus and have more serious decisions to make. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's also, I guess this is in the next one, uh, but like you really get to feel for a lot of them, or at least a few of them, you know? Yeah, that's good. He does a good job with all the characters. I like, oh, you know what else I like? I like the return of Ted. And Ted, Oh yeah. even Ted has a more serious role, even though he's like a tiny green speck. Um, I really like it when Thorne is like, yeah, Ted and I set up this spiritual barrier. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you and Ted did what? Um, yeah. So that's that's really fun. Um, I like the I like the reveal of the hooded one. And yeah. I like yeah. the hooded one's really... I, I totally forgot about this, but the, the hooded one's sort of relationship to the locust, where the, the, like, the locust refers to the hooded one as, as their love. That's a very interesting relationship. Um, and I like that. Right. And at the same time, she's like tr- constantly trying to earn their approval. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I like, I like that there's sort of conflict between, between that underboss and the boss. Like there's something going, it's not just like evil, dark locust, hooded one, King Doc. Like, you know, there's, it's not just like that. There's like some dynamics. Um, and that goes, yeah. that goes for King Doc too, but I think it's really interesting that, um, you know, the hooded one, she wants to use uh, phony bone instead of thorn because uh, she's worried about being replaced. I think that's super interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so you mentioned like that hierarchy of, of villainy there. Um, and so one of the more interesting things that I think this set of books does, um, and like, I don't know if it like fully gets away from this, but like one of my less favorite fantasy tropes is like, oh, we're like, you know, the, the fictional creature and we all act the same way. <laughs> Um, and we don't have any disagreements and we all have the same personality. Um, the rat. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, I think they kind of stray away from that because like, you know, in this one, we kind of see that they do have something of their own society and hierarchy and belief system. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they go fully into that, but like, I, I think they do a little bit more and there's definitely some like extra outside the books material on it. Um, mm-hmm. They go into a little bit of the cultural stuff about how they snip the ears and the tails, um, but I think they they I mean they show the the baby rat cub and you know those two that we follow around a lot. You can tell that there's some different personalities going on. I don't think it's totally a mob kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I like. Like I think, you know, I I don't want to like say oh well they're they're, you know, it's like the best example of portraying like an alternate fictional culture. But I also think that they do a good job of not just making it so they're like the evil horde. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I love Bartleby. That's the final thing I'll say. I love Bartleby. Oh, Bartleby so is, uh, so adorable. Fictional character of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's adorable. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I'm thinking if there's anything else I want to say. Um, I don't think so. I think the things I want to say are more like the, the final plot kind of stuff that, that bleeds into the sixth book a little. So we'll talk about it next. Yeah. Week. Cool. Yeah, um, you know, the the thing that I really like and the image that always stuck with me uh, as a kid, uh, or, or like of the many images that stuck with me, um, it comes in like the final pages of volume six, um, where we get this drastic escalation of what's going on. Phony Bone's been kidnapped, they're about to do like a ritual sacrifice, um, and we find out that the reason the locusts are after Phony Bone... Oh, yes, that is what I wanted to say. Is <laughs> his election balloon uh, like somehow floated into the valley um and so you get this amazing panel of this horrifying balloon <laughs> monstrosity of phony bone with this big banner that says phony bone will get you 
And he's like, no, it's supposed to say Phony Bone will get your vote. Yeah, and it's the banner that we've been teased about so much. Um, yeah. For why they got run out of town, and that comes together so nicely because it's established, but you just never see it coming, never in a million years. Oh, man. It's so good. So and it, like, yeah. it's, it's hilarious, but it also gives me chills. <laughs> and that's such a difficult balance to strike. Yeah. Uh, that is the one thing I wanted to talk about. Yeah, you, Joe. I almost forgot that. I can't believe it. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. You saved us. Uh, anyway, uh, read Bone if you haven't. I don't know why you'd be listening to this, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who are the people who read the first three, gave up, and then listened to this to see if they should read more? <laughs> <laughs> shall we move on? We shall. Okay, Nick, today, uh, as we do every week, um, you know, I, I thought uh, since um, there was a movie that came out uh, a week or so ago um, and we, we didn't end up talking about it on the show, uh, that we could talk about Phineas and Ferb a little. Oh, okay. Yeah, sounds good. Go you know, what I, what I want to talk about here um, is, uh, as many have asked over the years, they're in the theme song, they say that there are 104 days of summer vacation. I am personally willing to accept this premise. Me too. There are 104 episodes of Phineas and Ferb. There are more? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> Look, Joe, I can't say I've done the math since we had this conversation. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that there are time travel episodes and episodes where they yes. spend, do you know, it's one day, plus episodes where it's like an alternate dimension, um, things like that. Or like episodes where it's like Perry the Platypus like, like and his agency. Like, I don't know, things like that. Or like winter episodes, things like that. You know what I mean? Okay, Nick, Nick. It, look, it still doesn't work out. Yeah, you're personally, start. personally, I have done the math. Okay. <laughs> There's something like 220 episodes of Phineas and Ferb. Mm-hmm. Only like 15 to 20 of them can slot into the category of like, you know, not taking place in the summer. Mm, okay. <laughs> um, Fair. You know, so... so and I, I think there is also like, let's say we can add on an additional few, which I think take place like within the same span of time as another episode. Um, you know, but that still leaves us leaves us with about 200 or so episodes. Um, that's like, you know, 96 more. <laughs> Where do these days come from? And uh, I know you have a theory about this. Um, I sort of do. Uh, my first theory is that there are multiple summers. Um, you know, my, my second theory, um, and I think this one holds up a lot more, um, because the thing about the multiple summer theory is that I don't think it can be true, uh, because even though Phineas and Ferb are sometimes said to be different ages, like the, it ranges from like eight to 10 or something, um, you know, Candace is always the same age. And I think these are two contradictory things. Hmm. Um, and also, you know, you can track the timeline through the progression of her relationship with Jeremy because they're at you know oh. different. Um, yeah. So, so the thing about that, and and my my real theory is, which is actually something I believe is supported by the text, is that Phineas and Ferb operates on the same timeline logic that the Marvel Comics universe operates at. Mm, sliding time scale. Um, a sliding time scale. Um, you know, there's textual evidence for this. What is my textual evidence? I'll tell you. Uh, at a certain point in the series, they transition from all the characters having flip phones to all the characters having smartphones. Wow. Clearly, <laughs> this show is on a sliding time scale. It did not happen in the span of one summer. <laughs> so every year, the day of the summer, it's it's the next year, but it's the same year, is what you're saying. I'm telling you that. Phineas and Ferb operates just on a on a chronological logic that is completely foreign to our actual reality, and that trying to apply our actual reality time logic mm-hmm. to is an impossibility. Okay, yeah, all conversations lead to a sliding time scale, anyways. Yeah, so I'm willing to accept that, Joe. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. I just thought it might. Um, I guess I guess we found out sort of, but where does the movie take place? Um, Candace against the universe. Yes. Um, I think it has to take place before the end of the show, 
because Dr. Doofenshmirtz is still evil. And as we all know, all of us who watched the Phineas and Ferb finale. All true uh, fans. Yeah, all the true fans. He, he turns good at the end of that show, um, which means that this show takes place before that and before the spin-off TV show, Milo Murphy's Law. Okay, so Joe, so Joe, does yeah. that mean that because this movie came out more recently, this year, that the entire the timetable has moved up now? Uh, that's what I believe. Wow, interesting. Okay, I'm willing to. I'm willing to bite. I don't care that much. Um, yeah, uh, was, and, you know the thing good. about the, the the thing about the sliding time scale, which you have to keep in mind, is that any mention of like a character's age and any mention of what year it is off the table. <laughs> yeah. All right. Constant. Joe, I think that's a pretty okay theory. I think that I think it's good. I think it's it's thought out. Um. Yes, I like that movie. I think that people who like the show should watch that movie. It was funny. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's kind of a riot. I think it it has probably some of the weaker songs in the Phineas and Ferb canon, but there are also some good ones. That's true. I like the one where they are a battle song and they're singing the fake plan, and then <laughs> the enemy thinks that it's real. That's that was good. That was a double fake out. I'm a I'm a big fan of um the the last song that they have in the movie which is sort of just a, a capstone song um, what's that? that's like one of the better ones that they've done but what's the song uh us against the universe i think it's called okay i like the it's one big... <laughs> i like the we're back one i think that's the best one and it was like used for promotion only or something and then it's yeah i i agree actually that one's really good i don't know why it wasn't in the yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh i think there are I don't know if that one was intended to be in the movie, but there's another song that definitely was and is on the soundtrack, but is not anywhere in the movie, even in the credits. Weird. That's super yeah. weird. All right, Joe, are you ready for your wise quote dosage? Uh, I totally am. There is nothing new except what has been forgotten. And that's Marie Antoinette. Sorry, I forgot to say that. Huh. Thank you for listening to Out of Our Heads, a pop culture podcast from the minds of Joe Bortner and Nick Protopapis. You can contact us at outofourheadspod at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at Joby underscore draws. Uh, you can read my webcomic, Aeronaut, at jobydraws.com. As always, Nick has nothing to promote except for wisdom. Uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out. Uh, stay safe and see you next time. <laughs>